0: You can turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We are continuing our series in Luke's gospel, entitled Kingdom Come. So we looked last week at Jesus calling his first disciples. Right, He calls Simon, who eventually will get renamed Peter. He calls Simon and his, and his fishing partners, right? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And so he's starting to build his ministry. Now we're going to continue this morning. In chapter 5, before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we want to take seriously the call we received from your word last week. To follow you and the call in our following, in our responding to be your disciples, to also pick up the calling to be disciple makers. So Lord, we ask now as we continue in Luke's gospel, as we continue in your word that you have given to us graciously Lord, help us to understand more completely, more accurately what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Lord, help us to see all those things in your word that you intend for us to see this morning. And then, Lord, by your power, do what you promised to do through your word. Lord, we know that your word never returns void, and so we ask that you would accomplish all its purposes this morning in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I might be a bit biased with this statement, but I'm going to make it anyway. In my opinion, there are few things worse than a bad skin disorder. And let me explain that in a second. I don't think there's much worse than a bad skin disorder, with maybe the exception of an undiagnosed bad skin disorder. Having a skin disorder that's bad and it's spreading over your body is not pleasant. It's not pleasant. It's usually not comfortable. Usually skin disorders hurt, or they're itchy, or they're just gross, right? But it's really bad when you have no idea what it is, or why it's spreading, or if it's going to stop spreading, or if it's ever going to retreat. And I can say this because I experienced one of those bad skin disorders, one of those undiagnosed skin disorders, when I was in college. I was serving for the summer on the Pine Ridge Reservation up in South Dakota, I was in this little, little town called Manderson, Manderson, South Dakota, on the res, in the heart of the reservation there. And I was there. I was working with youth groups that would come in. It was a great summer. Things were going awesome. Until one morning when I woke up and didn't feel like I had slept very well and I got a shower and I was getting dressed and I noticed on my skin something that wasn't there the night before. And being a typical 19-year-old guy, I just thought, oh, well, no big deal. <laughs> It'll go away. Put my clothes on, got to the end of the day, realized it's still there, and it's spreading. As a guy, I went and took a shower and cleaned up, figuring that would solve the problem. Went to bed, slept even worse, got up the next morning, and realized it was spreading even more. Well, that continued over the course of an entire week. And what started out as just a little, little spot on my body had become massive amounts of, I don't even know what you would call them, and they were everywhere. Everywhere. And it had become horrible. I was laying, we were staying in an elementary school and I was sleeping on an army cot. So it wasn't like the most comfortable bed ever that summer anyway. But it got to the point at the end of the week that I was literally getting no REM at all because I would wake up constantly in the middle of the night just itching all over my body. Just compulsively itching this disorder that was spreading. And so I finally got to the point where our site director said, listen if not for your own sake, for our sake, having to look at this thing, you need to go and drive the 45 minutes to the doctor on the res and get this thing diagnosed. And so I went to the doctor on the res, and he went and he looked at it and did a a very, very brief examination and gave a a quick diagnosis to take this this ointment and just apply it liberally for the next couple days and it will go away. So I went back and started applying the ointment liberally, And the thing just kept spreading, and it just kept getting worse, to the point where some of the marks on my skin were about yay big and and, and literally coming off about a quarter inch, turning purple. So when I say there's nothing worse than a bad skin disorder, I really mean it's really, really not pleasant. But it's especially not pleasant when you realize it's misdiagnosed. This, This doctor wasn't serving on the res out of the goodness of his heart. I think he had ended up there because he couldn't find a job anywhere else. And he had misdiagnosed it. He would given me this ointment that was actually just spreading everything over my body as I applied the ointment. And so it wasn't until a week and a half later that I finally ended up in Rapid City at a real hospital where I got treatment. And finally, it started to retreat. And I started to get sleep. Finally, I had some relief. Well, I bring that up because it segues into the episode we see this morning. Look with me now in Luke's gospel in chapter 5, but we see really the skin disorder of all skin disorders, but one that's diagnosed and has significant consequences for the individual. Luke shows us two episodes here of Jesus's power to heal. In Luke 5, starting at verse 12, here God's holy and authoritative word. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him, Tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. And now, even more, the report about him went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. The word of the Lord. May he write his truth upon our hearts. Well, Luke presents these two healing episodes side by side to make really a a singular point. We're going to hopefully make that singular point by, by, by showing three main points in the message this morning. The first thing we see is that this is an episode of cleansing. We see one of those skin disorders. In fact, the scene Luke describes, he talks about leprosy. That that word that gets translated leprosy doesn't necessarily equate to our modern notion of the disease, though. The idea of, of leprosy is rooted in Leviticus 13 and 14, and it refers broadly, really, to any sort of infection that, that comes on the skin. An infection that comes on the skin and then gets carried by a person's clothing and can even spread throughout their household. It's sort of a catch-all term for some sort of rash or or disorder that's spreading across a person's body. That's what leprosy, can. it can be our modern notion of the disease, but it can also be just a skin disorder that they can't diagnose and they can't get to leave. These were were serious infections of the skin. And in the days before modern medicine, or reservation medicine, treatment really equated to a little more than a permanent quarantine. If you had leprosy, if you got a really, really bad skin disorder that was infectious, they would basically send you off by yourself. Leviticus 13.45 says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. In other words, you're going to let your hair look really grody and you're going to wear really bad-looking clothes so everyone can see from a ways away this person is diseased. And you shall cover your upper lip and cry out, Unclean! unclean he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease he is unclean he shall live alone his dwelling shall be outside the camp that's not a pleasant description of the way to go about life especially in a day and age where it's not you have this disease go take some antibiotics take this this regimen of medication and in a week you'll be better This was akin to a death sentence. What's really telling is that in Leviticus, the one who made the diagnosis, it's not a doctor, is it? In Leviticus 13 and 14, the one who makes the diagnosis, if someone has leprosy, if they're now to be known and declared unclean, is actually the priest. That shows you something about how they think about the disease. The priest decides if you're unclean. It underscores that to have leprosy, to have a skin disorder... It's widely believed that that's visible evidence. You're you're seeing on the person's skin that this person is under God's judgment. This person has this skin disorder. The priest has gone to their house, diagnosed, yep, skin disorder. The priest comes and says they're unclean. This is an unrepentant sinner. This is happening because of something they've done or something they've thought. It's a penalty. That's the common assumption. Likewise, to actually become healed of a disease like that, the the assumption was you had to be forgiven of your sins. You had to repent. As long as your skin had the disease, everyone around you believed you hadn't repented. You were still living in sin. That's a brutal diagnosis. That's a brutal way to go through life. One of the commentators I was reading said you were essentially treated like a living, walking corpse. That's what it meant to have leprosy or to have one of those diagnoses. It also says a lot about how people in Jesus' day viewed the difficulty of having your sins forgiven, doesn't it? You end up with this disease that afflicts your skin and usually doesn't leave and can only leave if your sins are forgiven. That says a lot about The worldview of people thinking about the difficulty of actually finding repentance, finding forgiveness before God. It's really kind of the inverse of how we often think about it, isn't it? I think sometimes we can just sort of have a very trifling view of what it takes to have sins forgiven. I just just bow my head, say a quick prayer. Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Now I'm good to go. Well, that's not the view of of these people. It's much more significant. These people that get diagnosed by the priest are essentially living out a death sentence. A death sentence preceded by solitary confinement. Hannah and I recently were watching a documentary all about people who had been wrongly convicted and incarcerated of severe crimes and then were later exonerated by DNA evidence. And it was just a heartbreaking documentary to watch. It was heartbreaking to see the effects of these people, many of whom were incarcerated for decades and then and finally set free. And it was heartbreaking to watch because in a lot of the cases, even after the DNA evidence exonerated them, the government was reluctant to expunge their records so they could go apply for a job. But because their records weren't expunged, the question, have you ever been convicted of a crime? They had to still check yes, even though they were later exonerated. And so it was this, this terrible... I, I remember, though, in watching it, the one that really stuck out was this guy. He was convicted of murder, and he was sentenced to death. He was on death row for 26 years. And that entire 26-year sentence was served in solitary confinement. And he said for the first two years, they didn't even allow him to speak. If he spoke to the guards, if he uttered verbal things, he would receive punishment. And it was just heartbreaking to look at this guy and I, to think of 26 years in a cell by yourself. And it was so telling. I remember him specifically saying that the only thing that kept him sane was the knowledge of his innocence. If he had been guilty, he would have lost his mind. But the one thing that that preserved his sanity in 26 years of solitary confinement for a crime that he didn't commit was knowing that he was innocent. So what's it like for a leper who's been basically sent off outside the camp to die, a, a social confinement away from family and friends, but without the reprieve of thinking, I'm innocent. (laughs) Going outside the camp under the guilt of your own sin and the shame of an entire society. Lepers are total social outcasts. Everyone who knows you avoids you, and everyone who knows you looks at you and thinks, you're not just a sinner. You're like, a horrible sinner. Like, I'm a sinner, but I didn't get leprosy. So there's obviously something that person did that's way worse than what normal people do. And that's why they're going through this now. It's just immense social and emotional and spiritual trauma. You just see the boldness of this man, though, don't you? That he would come up, like... He's not coming up doing the stuff he's supposed to be doing. He's coming up to Jesus in the midst of a crowd of people to ask for healing, to ask for cleansing. It's astonishing, and unlike the others, he has to bring himself. He's not having friends assist him. He's an outcast. And he comes, and he throws himself before Jesus, and in this moment of incredible faith, you could just, can't you just see the crowds drawing back? Like, whoa, it's a leper! You just see party in front of Jesus, and this man comes, and people are scurrying. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, Jesus, if you're willing, you can do for me what only God can do. You can take away this skin disease. You, you can clean me, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't call upon God for help. Instead, he stretches out his hand, and he touches the unclean man, he speaks, and he's healed. And even those things underscore Luke is showing us Jesus' divine power, that he's not a normal healer. First, it says he stretches out his hand. In the Old Testament, there's all these texts that recall back to the period of the Exodus, And one of the things they understood about God is when God delivers, when God acts, He does it by stretching out His hand. He does it through His power and a mighty outstretched arm. Psalm 136.11 says, The Lord brought Israel out from among the Egyptians. How did He do it? With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For His steadfast love endures forever. What's happening in Luke 5 is actually a fulfillment of what Happened in Luke 4. Remember when Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61? And he picks up the scroll, right? And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's happening here in Luke 5. By stretching out his arm, Jesus brings the very deliverance Isaiah promised, and Jesus said he would fulfill. And second, he does it, he accomplishes the cleansing by speaking. Now, throughout Scripture, we encounter God's Word. And it's this vibrant, Hebrew says, living and active thing. God's Word is powerful. God doesn't just speak and his speaking is describing what he does. That's not how Scripture envisions God's Word. God's word accomplishes things. So in the creation account, it's not God saying stuff and then God doing stuff. No, it's God doing stuff by saying stuff. Let there be light and light is happening because he said it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. When he speaks, he's actually doing. When God says something, it brings his creative omnipotence to bear And it creates, it brings about reality. And so Jesus says, I will be clean. And then the man's clean. There's no ritual washing. There's no ceremony. It's the Son of Man speaking reality into existence. It's an incredible moment. With a word, this man, this leper, this unclean one, is cleansed. And it underscores Luke's broader point in these two stories. The man isn't just cleansed. Like the paralytic, he's been forgiven. Luke is presenting another story here with the paralytic to show us a point, to make explicit what everyone there would have assumed had just happened to this leper. The man wasn't just cleansed, He had his sins washed away. The original audience would have picked that up immediately. The connection between being afflicted with disease, especially a disease like leprosy, and then being healed necessarily implied forgiveness. And in case we're not picking up on that, Luke leads us into the story of the paralytic. And there's this incredible sense in the story. One of the things I love about this story of the the paralyzed man and his buddies bringing him. You have these guys with incredible faith. I can remember the graph lessons in children's church. When they would show us you know, like the roof, and like we'd have like a little skit where it's like, okay, somebody brings in like a paper mache roof. We've got to take the roof off to get your buddy in to get healed. Doesn't this guy have the best friends ever? Would you do this for your friends? That's not the point of the story, though. The guy's got great friends. They've got him on the roof. They're tearing apart some stranger's roof because they love their buddy. But the point is they've got this incredible faith. But it's faith directed at Jesus. Yes, they are great friends. Their faith is incredible. But Jesus is the reason it all happens. And there's this incredible sense in the story. He just knows everything that's happening. He's not surprised by the lecher, the leper approaching him. You kind of envision the crowd, whoa, like peripheral vision. that They see the unclean dude, and you're just scattering. People are getting knocked over. Jesus isn't standing there healing people, and then he turns and, whoa! And then has the politically correct. hi, you know, like tries to recover. That doesn't happen with Jesus. He knows the leper's coming. He knows all about it. He, he's not having to gather himself to reach out his hand. He, he's not alarmed as he's, as he's teaching and healing when, when the chunks of the roof start to fall in. Right? he knows exactly what's going on in the inner thoughts of all of his opponents gathered around him. These scribes and Pharisees and experts in the law, they're off in the corner, right? And they're conspiring and they're grumbling. In their hearts, they're just just peeved that this man would assume he could forgive sins. And Jesus knows all of it. Luke's point is also that Jesus knows everything about the paralytic. It's really telling how Jesus responds. Jesus' first move when the guy gets let down, he's not diagnosing the man. He's not like taking a little thingy bob and hitting his knee to see if there's a reflexive move. The thingy bob is the technical term for it, I think. It's a thingy bob and it's a thingy bob motion with your wrist. That's not what he does. Jesus doesn't do that. They lower him down. Jesus sees their faith, and he looks at the man, and he says what? Your sins are forgiven. He knows everything about this guy. What's obvious to everyone in the room is this dude can't walk. He's getting lowered down on a mat. That's obvious to them. The assumption they're all going to make is he can't walk because he's probably a sinner. That's just the way they thought about things. This close connection between the diseases you got, the afflictions you got, and the sins you'd committed. It's obvious he can't walk. We're going to assume he's a sinner. But what's obvious to Jesus in that room is the secret of every person's heart. Whether it's the scribes and the Pharisees in the corner or this man who's lowered down in front of him. He knows it. He knows every thought, every lustful glance, every secret sin that this man has ever committed, and it's open before Jesus' omniscience. And it's the same way with us. We don't think about things that way oftentimes. We don't think about things. But the reality is there's no hiding your sin from God's gaze what you do in the secret of a room or the secret of your house or when you think no one else is looking is not hidden from God no matter how much we want to pretend or might pretend it is. God knows all and he sees all. And that's significant because I think so often we don't seek forgiveness because we're paralyzed about what others will think of us if they really know about us. And that, in and of itself, is a failure to comprehend that God already knows it all. It's laid bare before his eyes. Jesus liberates us from that fear. He liberates us from the fear of of not seeking forgiveness from people because he already knows it all. He knows the worst about you in the same way he knows absolutely all there is to know about the paralytic and the leper. To the former, to the paralyzed man, knowing all this, knowing that the man is a sinner, he doesn't hesitate to forgive him in light of the faith that he sees. And to the latter, to the leper, he doesn't hesitate to extend his hand, to draw near. He knows everything there is to know about this disease, he knows everything there is to know about this man's life. There's no recoiling. It's reaching out. He does this because in forgiving sins, Jesus is expiating our guilt. Well, what does that mean, to have your guilt expiated? It's a really big, fancy term. When something gets expiated, it means it gets gets sent away something gets placed on the scapegoat. In the Old Testament, you would expiate sins that the priest would come and he would lay his hands on the goat, transfer the sins of the people onto the goat, and then it would be expiated. They would be taken by that goat and, and carried off outside the camp, representing the sins are now gone. With, with the goat leaving, the sins are gone. That's what's happening. Our culture... And we have to think about this. Our culture has done a really effective job of, of trying to alleviate our sense of guilt. Of trying to remove that, that sense of guilt that we, we should have about sin. And you'll see, just obviously, I mean, we've actually done the opposite as a culture. Our culture really celebrates a lot of things that are sinful, right? Instead of not talking about them or avoiding them, it's it's actually things you'll see up on billboards, Right? Sin that gets gets advertised. Sin that's leveraged as a way to sell things. That's how far we've gotten from this idea of of sin leaving you with a sense of guilt. And in this, we desensitize ourselves to sin. And I don't think people in the church are immune from this. We we live in this culture. We breathe its air. And I think it's very natural for us as we're in this culture to have this, this lowered sense. You kind of become... You get calluses to to feeling the guilt that you should associate with certain kinds of wrong, rebellious, disobedient activities. It removes any sense of guilt from our public conscience. But for this leper and this paralyzed man, there's no such delusion, is there? There's no getting. They are keenly aware of their sin. They go through life living in such a way that everyone that looks at them looks with a little bit of pity and a little bit of recoil and assumes that they're horrible people. They live in a culture where their guilt is as obvious as their maladies. And these are obvious ones. You can't walk, and your skin's falling off. And their guilt is that obvious to everyone around. It's hard to imagine what going through life like that would be, wouldn't it? Can you imagine if you went through life just with that sense of just exposure? Like everyone knows how bad you are. Most of us live life trying to hide that from people. But even in our culture where we we try and paper mache over our guilt, there's still those moments of clarity and honesty, right? When you kind of come to grips with your brokenness man, they can be devastated. You, you see a person or you encounter a person who's really come to grips with their guilt and, and, and their brokenness and their sinfulness, and you see how heavy it weighs on them. When Jesus declares to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. It, mean, it means those sins are expiated. Those sins are carried away. Those sins are gone. That's part of what enrages the Pharisees. They know the full significance of what Jesus is saying. They're grumbling. Only God can do that. He, he can't do that. He, he's not God. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is they sense incorrectly in Jesus that there's this flippancy. Your sins are forgiven. And in their hearts, they're raging because only God can do that. And there's this, Nothing's been killed. Nothing's been atoned for this sin. You're just going to flippantly say your sins are forgiven? They don't understand what Jesus knows. That there will be a payment for those sins. That there will be a sacrifice that's paid, a sacrifice that's made. One who stands before God with the sins of others on his back, outside of the camp. So that forgiveness can be granted. But what happens when Jesus declares that is the debt is canceled and the ledgers are balanced. Again, it's almost like the healing is a, is a living illustration. I don't think it was just a psychological thing with the paralyzed guy. But I think there's this connection. Jesus says, your sins are gone. And they start grumbling. He says, well, what's easier? What's harder? Forgive the guy's sins or tell him to get up and walk. So you can understand what I've done. Rise, take up your mat and walk. And it's almost like the sense of, because the weight is gone, the man stands up. You know that sense, if you've ever been in debt, of just like the crippling feeling of just, oh, just to be overwhelmed by debt. That, that's, a, that's a helpful illustration of what it's like to live under sin. And with Jesus, when he declares to this man, your sins are forgiven, it's, it's, it's blown away, it's gone. Ten tons of weight is is removed from the guy's shoulders. And so, yes, now he can stand, he can rise, and he can walk. Jesus heals him because he's been forgiven. He cleanses a leper. He, He forgives a paralytic. And he also shows us that in cleansing us, in forgiving us, he's restoring us there's a lot of good stuff that's happened to these two guys so far in the story, right? You no longer have to walk around with your hand over your lip yelling out unclean to everyone you encounter, right? And the other guy doesn't have to get carried around by his buddies. I love how he like, he grabs the mat. He doesn't leave it. He jumps up and he grabs the mat. It's almost like this trophy of God's grace. I don't need the mat anymore, but I'm carrying it. Look at what Jesus did. Like the little nurse, like the little kid song. He went walking and leaping and praising, you know, like that, just like, That sense of just, yeah, I can walk, I can jump, my legs work. He's just over, and the the crowd is just, they're amazed, they're astonished. How could this have happened? Well, the blessings keep going. Luke is making a connection to, to what happened just prior to this passage. What did we look at last week, right? It was the incredible fishing episode. Jesus calling his, his first disciples. Remember what happens when Peter encounters Jesus? He falls down and he confesses his sins. You see the theme that's going on here? The, the leper who's unclean, who's obviously a wretched sinner. The paralyzed guy who gets his sins forgiven before he can walk. And Peter, before all that, falls before Jesus when he sees his power, sensing his holiness, and he confesses, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. What Jesus does is totally contrary to what anyone else in that society would have expected or what they would have done. He doesn't recoil from Peter. He doesn't withdraw. He moves closer. More than that, he moves closer and he says, I want you to follow me. I want you to stay close, Peter. Hey, sinner, I'm moving towards you. And I want you to stay close to me. Implicit in the command to follow is that Jesus has granted Peter forgiveness for those sins. And with that forgiveness comes divine acceptance. And with that acceptance comes restoration. Look back at the end of the leper's healing. What does Jesus tell him to do? He tells him to go to the priests and show them that he's clean. Go make the offering they're expecting that's supposed to cleanse you as a proof even though we know you're already clean. Why does he do that? Well, it's clearly not to show off what Jesus has done, right? Because Jesus tells him, and don't tell anybody what's happened or who did this. So it's not that Jesus wants him to go to the priests and, and boast about how Jesus healed him. That's not what happens. In fact, Jesus doesn't want him broadcasting the news. No, go to the priests so that they can verify your healing. The function the priests serve is to, show, is, is to show up when someone first gets afflicted with a skin disease like leprosy. They come to the house, they examine the person's clothes, they look over the entire house, you see this in Leviticus 13 and 14, and they make a declaration. False alarm, person's okay, not a flagrant sinner, just some acne. Or they say, no, th- this is the real deal, leprosy. Pack your belongings and go. Depart from your wife, depart from your children, depart from your family, go outside the camp, live as an outcast, and probably die out there. On the flip side of that, if a person thinks they've been healed, if they think they've been cleansed, they come back to the priests, and the priests re diagnose, they re examine. And if the person is cleansed, if they are healed, the priest says, You're cleansed. You've obviously been forgiven. Now go back and live in the leper colony again. No. You're cleansed. You've been forgiven. Go home. That's how Jesus ends the episode. You've been cleansed. Go to the priests so they can see the proof of it so that you can return home. Because in your cleansing, in your being forgiven, you're also being restored. Only the priest can verify that the person is and that, God, that God's judgment is, is no longer there. Jesus wants the priest to declare what's already true. This man is forgiven, and he is now invited back into the full benefits of God's community. You don't have to be an outsider anymore. Jesus does what the law can't do. He doesn't merely diagnose, he heals. He doesn't condemn, he graciously forgives and cleanses. He, he doesn't cast out, he restores. And in doing that, he's not just wiping away the sin, he's wiping away all the attendant consequences. There, there's one commentator, it was really helpful, this powerful description, that the consequences of sin are like a bunch of cans behind a car. <laughs> Wherever that car drives, the cans are just rattling. You just, you just see it. This string of cans. Past disobedience follows us. It, it announces itself. It haunts us. By telling the man to go to the priest for a clean bill of health, Jesus is announcing that all the sin and its stain and its stigma and its separation is dealt with. It's set aside. You're not just clean and now you're not going to die a horrible death from the skin disease. You're clean, you're not going to die that death and you get to go home. You get to hug your wife. You get to kiss your daughter. It's this remarkable thing that happens. How often do we seclude ourselves in our sin? You sin, and the more honest you are, the more aware of it you are, you start to pull away. Isn't it often our habit to withdraw? To kind of, in a sense, cast ourselves outside of the camp? I think a lot of us do that. But because of Jesus, there's forgiveness for those sins and there's restoration. In Christ, because of the gospel, for those who have repented and believed, you don't stay outside the camp. You you don't withdraw from community. Micah 7.18 Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like you? Because he delights in steadfast love for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm convinced we can tell much about how much we've grasped the gospel's announcement of forgiveness and how we relate to other people. And how we relate to other people in community. People who know the depths to which Christ has cleansed them and forgiven them and restored them those people don't draw back. They don't retreat relationally. They don't exist on the edges of fellowship. They don't have to hide in the shadows. They know Jesus knows it all. And the Jesus who knows it all, he paid it all. He's paid it all. He, He knows every single sin, every single rebellious, he knows it all. The stuff that you haven't even come to grips with yet, he knows it. And for the one who's repented and believed in the gospel, for the one who's hidden in Christ, the one who's been regenerated by the Spirit, all of that has been taken and cast in the depths of the sea. That's incredible. if that still describes you this morning a person shrinking into the shadows even after you've repented and believed jesus is beckoning you into this in this text come out into the light come come back into the community don't, don't live outside the camp like a leper you've been cleansed that's not where you live anymore Enter back into the Father's house, and come and dine at His table with His people. Would you bow your heads, Father. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would be at work in all of our hearts this morning, Lord, to bring the assurance of Your gospel to bear. Lord, help us to understand, help us to believe more fully the reality of our sins having been forgiven in your Son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would grant freedom, that you would grant clean consciences, or that you would help us to believe what your word says, that you would help us to fight against the fiery darts of the enemy who, who wants to pull us back into bondage and into in, into guilt. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to know the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Christ Jesus and to know the fellowship that we now have with you and that we can have with each other. Lord, help us to live in the light Help us to live in community in light of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.